You're listening to What Mad Universe on the HyperX Podcast Network. Check out all our shows on podcast.hyperx.com. Content warning. Nazis, schmatzies, racism, giant spiders, and Michael Bay for some reason. Action, excitement, horror, romance, thrills and chills, swords and sorcery, rockets and ray guns, a dizzying canopy of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination. What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on... What? What? Mad Universe! German planes' machine guns peppered the sky with lead. Atcher took a slug in the leg, while his mount's wing was clipped by the spray from the plane's MG-34s. Its wing badly broken, the bird knew that it could no longer fly. Struggling to extend its wings for a final time, Atcher's bird dove, talons fully extending straight down at the coming plane. Atcher stood tall in the saddle, and held his heavy battle axe with all his might. The axe smashed through the cockpit canopy and drove itself into the pilot's chest. The pilot's body slumped forward onto the control stick, putting his plane in an uncontrolled spin. Dateline, New York City, 1939. The skies are partly cloudy with a chance of Nazis. A mighty German Zeppelin carrying a fleet of planes with a secret electromagnetic weapon threatens the lives of every citizen of the great coastal metropolis. But what's this? By golly! It's a band of valiant Viking warriors riding giant eagles here to fight for freedom and justice. America salutes you, boys. Meanwhile, north of the border in Toronto, Canada, podcaster Philip Rice introduces What Mad Universe in increasingly silly ways, much to the chagrin of co-host Adam Prosser. <laughs> Today's topic, The War Eagles, an ever-made film epic from Marion C. Cooper, creator of King Kong. We'll discuss the film's pre-production history, its final script, and a modern novelized adaptation of the story. All that and more after this. New this April from HyperX, it's the HyperX Clutch Controller. Get better control of your mobile gaming with its comfortable grip, directional pad, analog sticks, and shoulder buttons. This versatile controller can fit a variety of phone widths and can also connect wirelessly for use on tablets and PCs. Learn more and pick one up online at HyperXNHP.com, Amazon, Micro Center, Target, Best Buy, and other fine retailers. SequelCast 2 and Friends looks at movies and video games and franchises one movie and game at a time. Hosted by Matt Bradley Shurgi, Thrasher, and Alex Miller, been going since 2009, and we're part of the HyperX Podcast Network. And we're back. Uh, as as uh, I mentioned in that uh, silly intro, uh, we're discussing the War Eagles, which is a um, this is a a different thing from what we usually do, since this isn't 
really anything, any one thing. This is um, an unfinished project that's been sort of reworked in a few ways, but for the most part is um, uh, just that, a, an unfinished project. Right. Um, it was a script that was, was written and never actually... Well, okay, you, you, you know the history here. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was the brainchild of Marion C. Cooper, who uh, uh, directed King Kong, um, and uh, Willis uh, O.B. O'Brien, who did the special effects on Kong, uh, was going to be um, doing the special effects on this. Um, it was basically uh, Cooper trying to top himself, uh, do something even more incredibly large and um, mind-blowing to the to the public at the time. This would be about um, uh, this, yeah. The uh, started pre-production uh, late 30s, so 37, 38, uh, 39, and then uh, it just uh, didn't happen for um, specific reasons. Not the reason I thought, though. Um, I was uh, under a few mistaken impressions before going through the history of this, so I'll get to those in a bit. I, I spread a few of them in our introductory episode this season, talking about what we were going to talk about, so mm. uh, I'll be able to correct some of that. Okay. Um, yeah, so uh, to do research on this, I read the uh, novelization from 2008, um, uh, which is very loosely based on... Uh, it's basic. It's a broad stroke sort of adaptation. Uh, also, all the all the character names are changed except for Naru, the Viking love interest. Um, oh. Yeah, I also read uh, War Eagles: The Unmaking of an Epic, an Alternate History for Classic Film Monsters, which is a 2011 book by uh, David Conover and Philip J. Riley, which uh, um, is yeah a history into the into the pre-production and, and what happened, um, and also includes the full final script of it. Um, so that's where most of the information for this will come from. Hmm. Um, yeah, like I said, this isn't going to be talking about the book per se, but the project, and the book will come up as like a um, the only real attempt so far to get it made into in, in some form. I mean, not attempt, because people have tried over the years, but uh, uh, the only successful attempt to get it made into some some form of uh, finished product hmm. so far. Okay. Um, All right. Very interesting. When when was yeah, so, uh, just remind me when what your King Kong was nineteen thirty three correct? Yeah. Yeah. So it was, yeah. So this was a bit after uh, uh, Cooper had a successful film career before and after this though. So, um, yeah, I'll ju I'll just get into. Uh, the film didn't take off because uh, World War II happened. Um, uh, uh, Germany invaded Poland, and uh, Cooper uh, had um, was part Polish and had previously fought in the Polish Air Force, um, fighting off the uh, Germans in World War One as well as a, a Soviet invasion. So he was like a Polish patriot as well as an American. Um, so he went to rejoin the Polish Air Force oh. and um, fought uh, for the remainder of the war and, and trained. Uh, I believe he uh, retired a, a, a brigadier general, something like that. Sorry, I, I forget exactly his rank. Huh. But, uh, so, um, and uh, when he came back uh, to Hollywood, uh, he mostly, after that, he still had a successful career, but he didn't do a lot of sort of fantastical pictures huh. like he had before. 
Uh, he did do uh, Mighty Joe Young after that. Right. But uh, for the most part, oh, he Mighty Joe Young was John him Ford. as well. I thought I always thought Mighty Joe Young was kind of a ripoff of King Kong by somebody else. <laughs> oh no, it was it was him and uh, O'Brien also worked on it, huh. uh, as well as Ray Harryhausen, which right. we we'll get into. Right. Um, but um, uh, yeah, uh, Cooper. Uh, most of his career after that was working with John Ford for westerns and stuff. Hmm, okay. Um, so he did have a successful career. He just not you know what like monster fans would right. have wanted him to do. He'd, sh- he'd shifted his priorities. And and, and yeah. he, he um, so like literally as soon as Hitler invaded Poland, that would have been before, you know, America was technically fighting the Nazis. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah he ran before. off. And, okay. Yeah, because you hear stories about that. Like there were some people who, as soon as the Nazis were technically at war with anyone, even though they weren't, they didn't get to be at war with the U.S. until 1941. So, but a bunch of people ran off and joined various other militaries so they could fight the Nazis, right? Um, yeah, yeah. I think the um, Canadian. I think a lot of Americans actually went to Canada to join the Canadian, the Royal Air Force, because they were accepting everyone, even if you weren't actually a, a British citizen or a, or a citizen of the Commonwealth. So. Yeah, yeah, and, and in this case, he, he was uh, did have a connection to Poland, so that's right. Uh, why specifically? But yeah, um, yeah of course. Uh, yeah, I was under the impression because um, I first learned about this project from a Twitter thread years ago. I can't remember who it was and. I'd be unable to find it now because my old account's gone. So, you know, mm-hmm. what are you going to do? But uh, it said that um, the film was probably canceled because uh, it had uh, anti-Nazi sentiment, right. which it does. But um, the actual script um, is very careful to not call them Nazis or Germans. Um, there was a worry about... Um, uh, it, throughout all of Hollywood, uh, the German censors were very, uh, uh, they, they would um, not only not show a movie that was critical of uh, Nazi Germany, if they found a Hollywood movie that was too critical, they said they were going to not show any Hollywood movies from there right. from there on, uh, which uh, Germany was a big market and no Hollywood studio was brave enough to uh, yeah. want to... Yeah, that was you know, they, lose all that money. Yeah, they they did a, a behind the bastards episode about that, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so in this case, uh, the script was basically uh, it's a generic European enemy. <laughs> um, they just get called the enemy, and there's some outright contradiction. Like the um, uh, they refer to the leader as the generalissimo, hmm. which right is and, and the uh, in the script uh, the it says that the uniforms clearly don't belong to any, you know, existing country. It's sort of, they were supposed to be, they were going to be designed, so they were clearly right. not German. Schmazis, you might say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, it's that's clearly what it's about. It just, they couldn't actually show them. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Uh, th- this was a fairly common thing. I saw a movie called uh, uh, The Seahawk with um, Errol Flynn. That was basically a call for... Americans to join the war effort, but uh, you know it's it's all about the English versus the Spanish in the right. know, age of piracy sort of thing. So yeah, yeah. if I'm not but mistaken, it's very they made transparently a... about the you know current situation. Yeah, if, if, if I'm not mistaken, they made a couple of movies like set during World War One at the time because you could show them you know fighting the Germans right at that point. So, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So uh, the basic uh, uh, story. Um, that um, uh, Cooper initially pitched was a uh, uh, 
a pilot uh, who, for whatever reason, the reason changes a few times throughout drafts, uh, lands in the Antarctic. Again, I thought it was the Arctic for some reason, but it, it's the Antarctic. Um, and uh, finds a uh, volcanic uh, sort of oasis, and it's populated by a, a tribe of eagle-riding warriors. Um, they're not Vikings yet. That, that comes a little bit later in, in later revisions. They're described in the pitch as uh, like Vikings in attitude, but they're described visually as looking like Native Americans. So, uh, yeah, it's probably best they didn't go that route, you know, because it would have been white guys dressed as natives, right. probably. Yeah, similar as the issues in King Kong, basically. Yeah, that had black actors, but it was still really racist. <laughs> yeah, right. Though somehow less racist than the Peter Jackson Right, as has been yeah, pointed out, yeah. <laughs> I, I again I, I have issue I, I like the Peter Jackson version but it, it goes on too long and it's got mm. it's got a lot of issues yeah Peter Jackson version is uh, the extended cut that you know but they released it to theaters essentially <laughs> yeah yeah um, uh, it yeah anyway um, so uh, the original story was going to be uh, the pilot um, you know bonds with the eagle eagle uh, riders. Uh, there's also an enemy uh, race of beast men who live in the valley below um, who will wrangle uh, an Allosaurus because um, there's also dinosaurs, of course. Um, and uh, uh, the the hero pilot will have to um, go in to, to rescue his, his love interest, a Viking woman who gets kidnapped by the beast men. And they're going to be uh, they're going to sacrifice her to the Allosaurus. And then he rescues her and then gets away. And then uh, he's accepted into the into the tribe, and then he hears on the radio that uh, his country is being invaded. So he rallies up all the all the warriors to uh, go and protect New York. So that's that's the original pitch, and it that's basically the 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 plot of it throughout various iterations. But uh, some you know important additions are made. Uh, a writer named uh, Harold Lamb came on uh, for the uh, sort of uh, I guess second draft, or I guess this would be the first run through of the script because that was just a pitch, um, and added the idea that uh, uh, they were actual Vikings and added a bunch of historical things about how they could have gotten there and that sort of thing. Um, Harold Lamb seems to be uh, an interesting writer. I I hadn't heard of him, but uh, he wrote uh, popular historical adventure fiction that apparently inspired Robert E. Howard. Hmm. Like uh, probably a direct uh, inspiration on Conan and Colin stuff. So right, yeah. Robert E. Howard. I, I guess that's some... Robert E. Howard's whole deal was that he would basically he'd pick up a history book and read it and get fired up and he'd go off and write his stories. Some of which were actual historical adventures, but some of them were like if he couldn't make it work with what he wanted to do with actual history, he'd just do Conan or Call and and make it a fictionalized version of history. But it was always inspired by real historical events. Yeah, but this seems to be like an influence on on the style that he was working with. Okay. Um, that that's what the uh, the the production book said anyway. Yeah, that, uh, he was a direct influence on on Robert E. Howard. Yeah, definitely. Um, definitely, it was a, that was a popular genre at the time. Like that was a huge thing. Like Howard wasn't breaking any new ground in many ways for what he was doing. He was just following a lot. He was just doing it quite well. You know. Yeah. So, uh, so the Viking thing is is um, sort of largely um, makes the story, I feel. Uh, like, it, it adds a bit of, um, I don't know, if it was just like a tribe of 
of natives of Antarctica wrote giant eagles. Like that's still interesting, but Vikings, I don't know. That's a hmm. bit of the. I, I don't know if it's like the you know cowboy ninja. <laughs> yeah. Well, how did the Vikings get to early two thousands internet humor thing? Yeah. But <laughs> I, I I like the idea of Vikings riding giant eagles fighting Nazi zeppelins over New York is just awesome. It is. How, how did the Vikings get to Antarctica in this version? Well, um, yeah, the Harold uh, Lamb actually wrote out a. Um, a detailed sort of lore pitch. I, I don't know um, what you would call it, um, uh, which is uh, reprinted in full in, in the uh, production book. Um, it's him describing the the customs of the of the eagle people and um, you know uh, various things that they would hold sacred. And um, basically, the, the description is, and this isn't covered in any of the uh, subs. Like it's not in the the actual script and stuff, but. Uh, it's background information. Uh, basically, the Vikings landed in um, uh, an unnamed island in the Pacific Ocean, uh, where giant eagles um, spend some of the time each year. So they uh, migrate back and forth between there and the oasis in the Antarctic. Uh, so, um, it, according to the the initial, um, or according to this write up, uh, the Vikings would also migrate annually uh, at various points, and it was uh, a, a difficult uh, trip, and they had a lot of customs built around it. So I thought that was really interesting. Well, that, well, now I have to ask how did the Vikings get to the Pacific Ocean? Well, they, they were they were exploring. I don't okay. know. It was um, like it was like uh, Joe versus the volcano, where they somehow went way off course. Basically. Yeah. Well. Um, in in the uh, script, they're uh, explicitly uh, um, a team that went out the opposite direction of Leif Erikson. Oh. Um, like, Leif Erikson is, is mentioned directly. And uh, they came from uh, um, England, or, by, or at least, uh, you know, came from either Norway or whatever, went to England, and then went to where they... So uh, okay. that's why they're speaking English. Okay, all right. It's it's not very convincing, but you know, <laughs> what are you gonna do? Yeah, 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 yeah. Just, <laughs> do the shortcut. Yeah, fair enough. Because uh, a lot a lot of these a lot of these books have like the books have, uh, of Lost World stuff have the main characters learn the language, but it's hard to do that in a movie. Right. So like the John Carter uh, uh, movie adaptation has him drinking magic water, which gives him the ability to speak Barsoomian. Yeah, rather than the book where he just learns it over the course of a few months. Right. Yeah. Exactly. There's lots of my favorite. My, I mean, you can show people learning a uh, a language, but yeah, it's it's a difficult thing to show cinematically. The best version of that ever, of course, is in the Thirteenth Warrior, where he uh, they there's a montage of him sitting by the campfire and slowly learning their language over the course of a couple of weeks. That was that's if you've ever seen that movie, it's it's a great historical yeah. adventure movie, and it's got that really good sequence of him learning the language. It's, it's well done. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, it can be done, but usually they don't try. So yeah, yeah. And this is this would have been a fairly short movie. I feel like uh, King Kong is like a uh, an hour forty five. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's not going to be a three hour epic. No, of course. Yeah, yeah. So the final script was by a writer named Cyril Hume, who did um, um, mostly did uh, well. He did a lot of. He was had a big career in Hollywood. Uh, Seemed uh, prior to do mostly uh, punch-up stuff for Jungle Adventures movies. Okay. Um, 
which was apparently a big enough genre that it was like a you know a unit of the studio. Yeah, right. Um, Cyril Hume wrote. Uh, apparently, he wrote the screenplay for Forbidden Planet. That's his big uh, claim to fame. Oh yeah, 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 right. Sorry, yes. And I think that's later, yeah. but yes. I think he also wrote oh. the original uh, Tarzan, uh, the Johnny Weissmuller Tarzan as well. But yes, yeah, no, Forbidden Planet was a lot later, but yes. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Take a time machine back to before the world went to hell, around the year 2000. The 80s and 90s were so rad. The movies, the music, the TV, the games, that's what I want to talk about. If you're cool enough, join us and listen to Less Than 2000, because that's all we talk about. Adam and Chad live Less Than 2000, now part of the HyperX Podcast Network. New this April from HyperX, it's the HyperX Clutch Controller. Get better control of your mobile gaming with its comfortable grip, directional pad, analog sticks, and shoulder buttons. This versatile controller can fit a variety of phone widths and can also connect wirelessly for use on tablets and PCs. Learn more and pick one up online at HyperX and HP.com, Amazon, Micro Center, Target, Best Buy, and many other fine retailers. Yeah, this was at uh, MGM. I-, I forgot to mention that earlier. Uh, the King Kong was, of course, RKO, so this was a bigger studio. Apparently there was um, internal studio issues with um, them being wary about uh, all the outside people that uh, Cooper was bringing in. But it was just a fact that these were the only people who, you know, uh, say, uh, the special effects people in particular, say... Um, um, O'Brien, um, Obi O'Brien, eh, sorry, Willis O'Brien, a.k.a. Obi, uh, who, um, like, he's the only one who was doing this sort of thing at the time. Right, yeah, that was, um, he was the industrial light and magic of his day, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, yeah, uh, another thing that um, I, I didn't realize um, uh, going into researching this, this movie was going to be in Technicolor. Um, oh. I was just picturing in black and white because King Kong's in black and white. Right. You know? um, but uh, Cooper was apparently a huge early believer in Technicolor. Oh, absolutely. So he, he wanted everything to be as big and, you know, in your face as possible. Yeah, well, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, you, you probably, if you could do it, you probably would. But I think that required a bigger budget at the time. And, and, mm-hmm. and But he could probably get that after King Kong. So fair enough. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, yeah, some of the only stuff um, that was, or the only stuff that was actually shot for this was uh, pre-production um, special effects tests, but they've been unfortunately lost. Um, uh, it's unknown whether they were destroyed. Uh, the book, uh, the production book I read, uh, suggests that um, Technicolor, uh, since it, it went through the Technicolor process, and they typically don't throw things away. It probably is in a vault somewhere mislabeled. So hmm. uh, who knows? Somebody might uh, uncover it sometime, but uh, it also might be destroyed. So who knows? Right. Um, well, that's one of those things yeah, that makes, so, you, uh, makes you clutch your, your chest and be like, oh, I want it. I want it. To, I want to see that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the stuff uh, that they shot was um, mostly uh, eagles fighting um, the Allosaurus. Um Oh, I, I mentioned the the whole thing with the beast men. That eventually that wasn't in the final script, and that apparently went through a bunch of um, 
uh, it was a real headache for everybody involved. Uh, they just couldn't really make it work as a sequence. Um, even like before shooting anything, they couldn't just they couldn't figure out a plan for it that would have. Um, apparently, the the issue was that it was just too big of a climax right in the middle of the movie. You know, you want the right. the big climax to be the fight in New York, so yeah. this just felt like you know an ending to the movie, and then there's another ending on right. top. Um, well, that's that was and, apparently a thing with uh, with Cooper because King Kong had. Uh, a scene where they fell into a uh, a pit and fought in a giant insects. Uh, yeah, the spider pit sequence. That's that's just what I was getting to. Yeah, yeah, that was cut because it was too big of a of a climactic set piece in the middle of the movie, and they felt it overshadowed what came after. But they for that they actually shot it and filmed it, and then had to cut it out of uh, the finished film. Uh, so in this case, they they were very wary of that because they didn't want to you know do all this expensive stuff and then have to cut it so yeah um that that was obviously uh very much what was on their mind working on that hmm. um so it was sort of changed to instead of beast men and stuff uh it's uh still the uh, allosaurus but it's just um the eagles fighting an allosaurus it's not like a whole kidnapping plot and you know um going into the bowels of the earth with you know lava pits and stuff hmm. I mean, there, there was still lava pits, but it was to get rid of the Allosaurus. Right. So it was a big sort of uh, set piece involving um, a trope I really hate where there, there's a log in the middle of the lava and they're like standing on the log. Hmm. Uh, that, that would kill you. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that lava <laughs> would burn you up even if you were standing next to it, basically. It is yeah. rock that is melted. It is extremely hot. <laughs> But, yeah. It's a movie. <laughs> yeah. Also, giant eagles couldn't fly, so whatever. My, my, my ta- I mean, my take on, on the lava thing is just when you see lava in a movie, most of the time it's just, like, superheated water mixed with some, like, lava chemicals. <laughs> That's, or super, you know, it's not, it's not actually lava, so you can stand near it without boiling your skin off. Yeah. Oh, yeah, reading about the whole spider sequence thing and that they were really careful about not repeating that mistake, again, just reminds me of the Peter Jackson movie, which just puts, you know, climax and after climax during the, the uh, Skull Island yeah. uh, segment of the movie, and it just, it's exhausting. Yeah, it's... And like I said, there's a lot of good stuff in that movie, but it doesn't work overall, yeah, I feel. It's, like, bu- a, it's bizarre how the, like, the Peter Jackson movie feels like he deliberately put scenes in that were meant to be cut. <laughs> like they don't yeah. like the brontosaurus stampede and, and the bit where they're on the ice near the end. And it's like, those are nice scenes, but they destroy the pacing and they absolutely feel like, yeah, this is in because we'll cut it. And then it can be a bonus feature on the DVD. And then somehow he insisted that it would all be in the movie itself. So it's like, he should have taken a lesson from Cooper clearly. Cause he Cooper. Did yeah. The opposite of that. And then there's Michael yeah. Bay who, who will, have a climax of the movie and then have the characters go and invade Cuba afterwards. <laughs> well, well, enough about unrelated directors, I guess. Uh, just as a um, side, it shows you what Hollywood filmmaking has gone to. It's it's gotten very bloated. There's you don't get. Yeah. I mean, it, it's gone through periods of bloat and expansion because I mean the fifties had similar problems, but at least in the fifties they were sort of tonally building and consistent it was you know if even a three-hour epic right whereas 
you know. Not, I mean, there was still there were still bloated movies. I mean, uh, yeah. Heaven's Gate. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um. Anyway, um. So uh, an interesting story related to this movie that um, I I knew a little bit of, but it was interesting hearing the whole detail. Uh, Ray Harryhausen, uh, as a te- he was a teenager at the time, actually visited the production office of this movie. Hmm. Um, he, uh, <clears throat> uh, like I said, he was in high school at the time, and he was a a big fan of of King Kong, and he said it changed his life like that. Um, decided the direction his whole life would take after that, which makes sense, you know, knowing mm-hmm. everything that he did. Of course. Oh, uh, Ray Harryhausen. I, I assume people know what who he is, but uh, he did the effects on, like, um, uh, the Sinbad movies and it, those cool stop-motion monsters and stuff. Like, that's mostly right. all him. Yeah, he's known for the uh, Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, uh, Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Um, what was the alien one he worked on? Um, the Earth versus the Saucer Man, is that it? Um, I, I'm not sure about that yeah. one, but yeah. Clash of the Titans is one of his last ones. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, so, uh, he, uh, uh, made little experiments of his own, you know, trying to, to copy the stop motion techniques and sort of learn from, from King Kong and stuff, which, again, this is in the... 1930s like he didn't have access he couldn't rent king kong <laughs> um it's it's kind of amazing you know that, that he sort of a lot of this was uh, for him was self-taught though we'll see he did get guidance later on um so uh he was in uh, in school and he saw a girl reading a um uh bound book of uh full of king kong photos and uh he talked to her about it and she said that her uncle worked as a special effects artist on King Kong, and that this was a, a gift from, or, sorry, not uncle. Uh, it's it's often reported as uncle, so I got confused there. Oh. It, it was uh, her father and her brother also worked. Uh, her older brother also worked on the uh, special effects team. Um, so, uh, 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 and and uh, they they got to talking and. Uh, she said that uh, she knew uh, um, Willis O'Brien and that he was a really nice guy. And if um, uh, Ray Harryhausen wanted to learn from him, he should just give him a call. They lived in the same city, so, you know. Huh. Um, and so uh, uh, Ray eventually uh, built up the courage and, and called him. And he got invited into the, uh, into the studio to look at the uh, War Eagles art and stuff and have some conversations about his own test footage and... Um, that started uh, a relationship with uh, O'Brien, which uh, uh, Harry Housen worked on Mighty Joe Young, so he got a um, an in from this. Hmm. Well, I I, I did uh, know that general story of him meeting Will O'Brien was a teenager. I didn't realize it was on the set of the War Eagles, so, so that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it's not a set like the Office that had a bunch of art. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, right, not the set. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't film. Yeah. It never started filming. They were just doing special effects stuff at this time. Right, right. The, um, the production offices. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Harry Housen spent um, a lot of his his career later on trying to get this made in some form or another. Um, after his success with uh, a bunch of Sinbad movies, um, the studio asked him, you know, what what do you want to do? And he said, Well, you have this. You already own this property, and. Uh, we, we can just do this, but they were apparently hesitant to do like a, 
a retro World War II thing. Even though, like, Indiana Jones came out soon after that. <laughs> wow. And blew box offices away. So, you know, what do what studio heads know? But <laughs> Well, that's, yeah. See, that's a really interesting thing about George Lucas, because he did bring retro back. And it was like, in the 60s and 70s, it was, it was all about, you know, cutting edge, moving forward, and it was the new generation. And it is, it is really interesting that that you know, that, that started kind of a retro trend in Hollywood. But I would have said there were still World War II era movies in... Uh... Yeah, but like a World War II era fantasy movie. Right, yeah. Like, I think that was the issue. There's a Doc Savage movie made by George Pal sometime in the, I want to say late 60s, maybe early 70s. Um, so, like, they hadn't forgotten the concept, but... Yeah, and I guess, and that was George Pal, of course. It was someone who could get that kind of thing made. But yeah, it was definitely not, that was, and if I understand correctly, I haven't seen it. They uh, they really ramped up the camp and made it kind of a, like a, they were kind of mocking the old, you know, uh, pulp. Like, I think that was the, I think that was the default mode for a lot of the 60s and 70s was like, if we're going to mention, like, classic sci-fi, it's going to be with a, a lot of camp and a lot of tongue-in-cheek. And yeah, Lucas kind of, reverse that with uh, Star Wars and Indiana Jones. He made it, he, he took it seriously again, basically. Yeah, uh, so uh, a major plot point in the in all versions of the story is the uh, the Zeppelin, uh, or the, the Zeppelin carrying a fleet of planes that's going to attack New York. Uh, though the script actually calls it a dirigible, because again, they were trying to avoid any association huh. with Germany in the script. <laughs> Um, it's clearly a Zeppelin, but they're, they're not going to say the German word. <laughs> well, is it a blip? Like, is a blimp a different thing than a dirigible or not? Than a, than a Zeppelin, yeah, but a dirigible covers both, I think. Oh, so. okay. I think. All right. It's a thing anyway, that can be dirged. Um, <laughs> um, and, uh, the, uh, uh, it also sports a, uh, electromagnetic weapon, which will, or I don't think it's described in those terms in most, uh, it is in the, the novelization because we know what an EMP is now, but uh, uh, but that's basically what it is. Like it, it stops electric, uh, it stops machines from working basically. Hmm. Uh, in, but it's a, a directed weapon, so it can it doesn't affect the planes. And uh, oh, also I think it said the planes had shielding or something. I don't know how it's supposed to work, but again, it's fantasy movie so hmm. what are you gonna do um well they always had but, uh, super rays in the old uh mad, you know the old pulp the mad scientist always had some kind of ray that could defy physics in various ways yeah well the um a lot of the uh uh yeah the specific image of the uh a giant zeppelin that's its own um uh sort of uh aircraft carrier with you know airplanes coming off of it uh seem uh was uh, for this movie. It was probably inspired by a 1934 issue of Modern Mechanics. Uh, from uh, it had a, a cover that had this uh, very um, um, striking image of uh, of a Nazi um, um, zeppelin. With um, like I said, uh, there was also a um, uh, another magazine cover from. A little bit before the movie came out, or the the movie was uh, went into uh, pre-production, which was um, uh, you know, well the the Germans create a uh, electric weapon, electric ray weapon. Um, so all this is basically inspired by all these you know things from magazines uh, right. exaggerate you know 
exaggerating what they thought the, the Germans could be capable of. Yeah. Uh, Technology-wise. Yeah, pop- not, not popular that they didn't mechanics have, had lots know, of rockets and stuff. Though. Yeah, exactly. Popular mechanics had all those, like, uh, flying wings and crazy. It's how we, you know, it's retroactively what we, what we, it wasn't usually in a lot of the actual 30s movies, although maybe some of the comics, but, you know, retroactively it's stuff like, like Batman the Animated Series used a lot of the designs and things and, and. Yeah, um, Sky Captain, The World of Tomorrow. Right, exactly. Which, uh, yeah. I do like that movie. Anyway, yeah. that's, I, I talked about why the, uh movie didn't get made um and that it went uh through a number of years of various people trying to get it made uh uh cooper seemed to have lost interest at this point you know it was sort of uh like i said he was working on cowboy movies and stuff he did talk about it in an interview at one point said it would have been spectacular but you know it just didn't happen um so it's just it's one of those really uh disappointing things with history like this movie would have been amazing mm. i feel like um yeah the the script had um uh it it actually had a, a number of like really funny funny bits in it um the the, the lead character is a, a test pilot um who uh gets uh, uh grounded for um buzzing the um empire or er, for uh buzzing the statue of liberty uh <laughs> Um, and, uh, uh, he decides to, uh, take up a, uh, businessman's, uh, challenge to, uh, fly to the, uh, from pole to pole hmm. in a, in a new plane to advertise the plane. Um, and there's, uh, there's a funny bit where the, the businessman who, who owns the plane is just obsessed with his, with his, with the sign outside of his building. Um, it, it's, it's hard to describe in this. Um, just talking about it, but the script, like the character just keeps coming back to it. And uh, towards the end, when uh, New York's getting bombed, he says, oh, I guess we'll have to do it. Put the sign in storage. And then it says, um, he pauses and then it stands up dramatically. No, put a battalion of guards around the sign, you know, sandbags. (laughs) We're leaving. We're not taking the sign down, damn it. (laughs) All right. And does it get destroyed? Uh, it doesn't cover that, but that's his last scene. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, <laughs> the he's obvious only in like the two scenes, yeah. but yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, the lead character is, you know, um, typical He-Man um, uh, hero type, you know, buck square jaw character from this time period. Uh, makes a lot of sexist comments, but... You know, g- generally likable. Like he's he's like a Han Solo type. I don't know that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Or um, maybe a better uh, Maverick from Top Gun. He's, he's Tom Cruise from Top Gun because uh. he has a test fi- pilot who keeps you know doesn't play by the rules. Yeah, yeah, the standard pulp hero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, um, yeah, I guess I, I've described the the rest of the stuff from this the rest of the storyline from the script, uh, you know, he lands in, in, um, um, in, uh, Antarctica, uh, meets a beautiful Viking woman, uh, finds out that they're all riding eagles. Um, he, uh, uh, figures out how to capture a, um, or how to mount a, uh, a giant white eagle that they're all, that all the Vikings sort of revere that they've never been able to capture, um, or to, to, um, break in. 
like you would a horse. Um, so that's what sort of initially impresses them. And then um, he helps them um, uh, destroy the Allosauruses for, for good by um, drowning them in lava. Um, uh, and that, that's what's, what was keeping them from, from uh, um, spending all their time on the ground. They had to spend it all in the mountainous, you know, up in the mountains where there was no food and they had to go down to hunt for, for uh, food, but there was an Allosaurus there, you know, constantly in their way. I've, I've been there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the, uh, the novelization, I guess I, I guess I should get into that. Um, it's by uh, uh, an imprint that uh, Ray Harryhausen actually put out. This was apparently, um, this was the first book in this imprint. I'm not sure if they did others, but um, um, he, he said in, Harryhausen said in the foreword that this, this is sort of an attempt to, to possibly get a movie version off the ground. Because uh, he still, even in 2008, hmm. you know, wanted to get this made. Um, which is, I have to commend him. Um, yeah. I actually, uh, when I found out about this uh, this project, I did check IMDb, and there was, like, at the time, somebody was trying to make it. I believe somebody connected with Peter Jackson, because he's also a big fan of this stuff, of obviously. And he uh, actually owns, um, uh, like, as a collector, had bought a number of the um, uh, art pieces and uh, the um, anim or the the armatures for the uh, models that they that they had already built. So he actually owns uh, a number of things that um, to do with this movie. So, hmm. um, yeah, like even a, even a Peter Jackson movie, I'd like you know, yeah. even his modern bloated movies, uh, I I just want to see this get made. It would be really hmm. fun. Yeah. Um. So uh, this version, um, I, I'm. I actually read this before I read the original script, and I like the original script better. Actually, I think it it flows better. Some of the changes I feel are not for the better. Like this has it so um, instead of just learning about the um, the invasion of New York on the radio, uh, there's sort of a contrived um, like the Nazis are nearby. Sort of they have their own base nearby, and that's how he finds out about it. And it doesn't really fit. I feel like like maybe it could have with a bit of reworking, but I don't know. Hmm. It sort of comes out of nowhere that the Nazis have a nearby base. I guess they felt radio wasn't cinematic enough or something, but yeah, weird. <laughs> yeah, that he had to... Um, and there's also uh, a lot of... Because um, in the original uh, script, they just, you know, they're Vikings. They have swords and spears and axes. That's mainly what they use to fight the Nazis. And it is unrealistic, but, you know... So is Vikings riding giant eagles. In this, they they uh, mostly get a hold of um, munitions from the uh, camp that they attack. Um, so they're actually fighting with with guns and stuff and grenades. Um, I don't know. It doesn't have the same imagery to me. Hmm. Yeah. Though it does um, it does explicitly have them as Nazis in this version, <laughs> which is. Um, um, yeah, you can better in that respect. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I, I don't. I mean, it's sort of amusing to me that, and I mean, like anyone, if the movie had come out in 1939, I think everyone would have gotten the point. I mean, it's a, yeah, it's a thing. You know, you read. I've read some other stuff from that era, and they didn't. You know, they they sometimes they wouldn't explicitly mention the Nazis, but ever it's it's very obvious. You can't read anything from that period without filtering it through that 
viewpoint of what you know people were people were thinking. So I, I think it would have been fine and, and almost more amusing. <laughs> you know, like nobody watches, uh, you know, the great dictator and goes, well, they didn't make him Hitler. And therefore, you know what I mean? Fair. <laughs> it's, it's that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. But, but this, this does take, uh, you know, uh, the approach that you're, you know, in, in hindsight, you know, it's like, uh, FDR is explicitly the president in this version. Um, in the uh, in the novel version, he actually is trying to um, show that this plane really works. So he wants to, um, and they're they're going to ground the plane. So he decides to just take it out for a flight to in front of a uh, FDR speech. But it, it ends up endangering his life because it malfunctions. So hmm. that's what gets him court-martialed. <laughs> that's um, the original script, or the, the the no no that's the that's the book version. Okay. The original script, he just sort of flies too close to the Statue of Liberty. Hmm. Um, oh, uh, yeah, I, I should mention, like, pretty much every version of this story ends after they defeat the, the um, invading army. Um, the uh, hero and uh, all the other Vikings uh, land their eagles on the Statue of Liberty, and that's sort of the final image. Um, that, that would have been, like, the, the iconic, you know, King Kong on the on the Empire State Building sort of image for this movie, hmm. um, and it's on the the cover of the version of the book the novel I have. There's a few other covers that this has, but uh, the version I have has the the hero on a giant white eagle on the Statue of Liberty. It is a cool image. Hmm. Um, America. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you know, it's yeah. no, I know that's cool. That, that, that's that's. That's that's entertaining and and yeah I, I was gonna say King Kong and the Statue of Liberty and then I realized wait the Statue of Liberty isn't in King Kong it kind of feels like it yeah. should be there but I guess it's just been used so often that would have been well the Empire State Building was new like it had just been built like two years earlier but I'm just saying the Statue of Liberty I can't think of a big Statue of Liberty moment in a movie uh, at from that period from the 1930s so. Yeah, this would have been like obviously before Planet of the Apes. So yeah, yeah. this would have been. Interesting. Yeah, again, I, it, it's it's interesting thinking of a world where this movie was actually made. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> thinking of like uh, it's the the, the uh, Lionel uh, Lionel Hutz thing with people holding hands <laughs> under a rainbow and dancing all the nations um, of the world. Yeah, so yeah. the White Eagle in the original script is not named; it's just the White Eagle. Um, in this one, he gets the name Lindy, uh, named after <laughs> um, Charles Lindbergh. Yeah. And, and the book actually does point out that the hero didn't know this, but uh, Charles Lindbergh was a uh, fascist supporter and <laughs> met with Hitler. And, you know, he was he was not a good guy. Yeah. Um, but it, it but was it was, I guess, possible to not know that. Right. At that time i don't know yeah no it's it, yeah it's, it, that makes a lot of sense of something somebody would name an eagle in the 20s and 30s basically yeah without knowing yeah about lindy's lindbergh's politics uh yeah the the script uh apparently early version early drafts of it had the uh hero intentionally going to the north to the antarctica to uh specifically discover the the tribe of uh, vikings he was going to be accompanied by like a bumbling but good-hearted professor character who ended up getting cut from subsequent drafts. Um, in this one, uh, the hero has uh, two, um, uh, a co-pilot and uh, um, a media person on, on the plane um, who 
get involved in the story. I, I um, the uh, uh, co-pilot is uh, depicted as Polish in this, and he actually um, uh, is um, responsible for downing the plane because he was looking for the for the Nazi hideout. So I guess I guess that does sort of fit hmm. story-wise. Okay. I don't know. Again, I, I I think just hearing about it on the radio is fine. Yeah, having. It, it, they probably felt that like there needed to be a personal connection that makes them visible instead of just, you know, at the time, I think world events were on enough people's mind that it was fine. But, you know, in, in sort of a retroactive modern day retelling, you've got to sort of set up the bad guy and, and make a, a connection to them kind of thing. So. Yeah. Yeah. And th there is a, like a command commandant uh, character in this. That's obviously like the, Characters in the in this the, the villainous characters in the script are just faceless. You know, it's like not quite as bad as like Top Gun, where they fight an an enemy at the end and we don't even see what they look like. <laughs> yeah. Um. But uh, it is on that level. I feel. <laughs> yeah. Um. You know, trying very hard not to offend any uh, particular country. Like, uh, oh, uh, they made a remake of Red Dawn where they, it was supposed to be China invading. Right. But then they realized that China's a big market and basically the same thing, I guess. Yeah. Didn't they end up making it North Korea invading in that movie? I think so, yeah. yeah but it, it was like ADR changes. Yeah, yeah. That's... Like they shot it at, as China and they changed it to North Koreans in post. Yeah, yeah. Like North Korea has the power to invade the U.S. Yeah, yeah. Ground <laughs> Same as it ever was. People trying not to, you can't not to tick off uh, the people who might see the movie outside of America. Yeah, uh, not not to compare China with with Nazi Germany, but you know. It's, yeah. Sorry, I did actually want to talk about a similar a book I read that's somewhat similar. Okay. Uh, so I was aware of a uh, novel called uh, Thyra, a Romance of the Polar Pit. From 1901 by uh, Robert Ames Bennett. Um, it's about a, um, uh, a a group of explorers who go to uh, the North Pole and discover a lost tribe of Vikings. And there's also uh, dinosaurs and other prehistoric monsters. Um, so it, it's sort of similar in in the basic the broad strokes of it, though it's it's quite quite a different story. Uh, obviously, this doesn't have hmm. the you know invasion. Um, idea and um, the uh, the Vikings in this are um, kind of uh, a lot different from a lot of the um, uh, pop culture depictions of Vikings since they're explicitly socialists here. Um, it says they've only been socialists for like a, a few hundred years, but uh, it's it's kind of interesting that the book's presenting a very the, the Vikings are socialists. Yeah, yeah, like they. Their culture has changed in the intervening time as well. That's what it says. They, but they spontaneously discovered socialism <laughs> as a philosophy. Uh, a form of um, of um, uh, democratic socialism. Okay. All right. Um, okay. It also uh, they had um, a few uh, uh, sort of scrolls uh, uh, that they got from their initial trip out into the Arctic. Um, uh, apparently, the uh, uh, the leader of their band was accompanied by an Irish monk, uh, so they had like a page of the Beatitudes, um, not not like the stuff with uh, you know the supernatural stuff, just you know the basic the Sermon on the Mount, you know, blessed are the poor for they 
so that's where they get a lot of their um, their ideas from on morality. So that's where the socialism aspect comes in. Huh. Okay. Um, so that's somebody uh, had a very strong agenda they wanted to push with that book, is what you're saying. Well, for for those sections, it's mostly an adventure story. Of course. Uh, it's it's also really racist, unfortunately. <laughs> mm. um, one of the like one of the explorers band is a uh, a black man named Sergeant Black. Um, and he speaks in really stereotypical dialect. Ooh. He's still a hero, but like, like he's a heroic character. Hmm. But it's still really unfortunate reading all his dialogue. Um, like he's not even stupid. Like he's not even particularly stupid. Like he's like, if they just wrote his dialogue yeah. normally, well, that be mostly fine. That that was a thing. I mean, remember Ebony White in uh, The Spirit uh, by Will Eisner is like. Like, he's in every way, he's a heroic character, he's like, people liked him as a character, he's essentially the second lead of the story, but he's still drawn, and his dialogue is, like, horrible, you know, uh, minstrelsy stuff, but it's just, yeah. that's how it was done in the 30s, it was kind of like, that's the... You know, like, that's the, uh, th that's the, the mode they operated in, even when they didn't think they were being racist, essentially, so that's, yeah. that's kind of a good example of that. Though the the name Black, I mean, it's like calling the black guy Black. I mean, it is a last name people have, but yeah. Um, in this case, it's uh, specifically because uh, all the uh, members of the Explorers crew are sort of um, modeled on various Norse gods. So, like the the main character is named John Godfrey. So he's uh, the Vikings mistake him for Frey because mm. he comes in a in a sky boat like a balloon. Oh. Um, and Frey, Frere, the god, has a um, flying boat. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a there's a guy named Thord who's an Icelander. Um, uh, so he sounds like Thor. And uh, Black, Sergeant Black, is, uh, they mistake him for Surtur, uh, whose name means Black. Uh. Uh, who's the um, guardian of uh, Muspelheim, the land of fire. Right. Um, and, you know, he's he has black skin and he smokes. So that's why they mistake him for Surtur. So... Um, that's the idea. It's still, it's unfortunate, <laughs> but it is actually a fun book. Otherwise it, it's a, it's a fun adventure story. It has some similar beats with, um, uh, to war Eagles, uh, with, you know, specifically the romancing of the Viking woman. Um, and the fact that it's set in a, um, uh, though it's set in the North pole, not the South pole. So, you know, yeah. it's a pole, right? Um, and it's got dinosaurs as well, though, I, again, in this case, they're sort of, they're linked to Norse mythology. Um, so there's, um, uh, the, the Vikings call one of the, uh, uh, big, uh, I forget which dinosaur it is specifically, but, uh, uh, they call it Nidhogg, you know, the, the dragon that chews on the, uh, roots of the world tree. And, uh, there's a, also a race of beastmen in this one, and they're called, uh, Dwerger, um, which means dwarf. So yeah, hmm. again, um, uh, also this book has um, a few clans of Vikings. Um, sort of it, it offshot into a into a few different uh, groups. Um, anyway, I would actually recommend uh, uh, Thyra if you're looking for a good uh, sort of adventure story. Uh, it is, uh, as far as I can see, fairly highly regarded. So it's not like a completely obscure bit of thing. <laughs> I came across, but uh, um, I, I uh, like 
I, I read it for uh, this episode because I, I knew it was a sort of similar premise, and I'm glad I did. So hmm. check that out. But uh, also, um, not sure about the novelization for War Eagles. Uh, like I said, it's the, the writing's a little pedestrian. I do like uh, the specifically the action scene writing. Uh, that's pretty good, but um, I don't like... A lot of the changes. I think if you're going to experience this, uh, check out the uh, the other book I mentioned uh, by uh, David Conover and Philip J. Riley, which uh, again uh, has the entire uh, final script for the movie, which um, I think is a better look into this whole project. Yeah, cool. I'm hoping to read that. <laughs> I'm gonna. I, I can lend it to you. Yeah. I have a hard copy. So. Yeah, exactly. That'd be cool to read. So, thanks for doing it for us. No problem. Okay. Uh, well, that's it for us today at What Mad Universe. We've been hotshot test pilot Philip Rice and uh, Viking chieftain Adam Prosser. Our producer was Generalissimo Alex Ross, and our opening war chant was composed by Jack Furyk. Pretty harsh on Alex Ross there. Uh, just <laughs> no, no, no. Just a reminder: uh, we both have a Patreon, which helps pay for hosting costs and whatnot. Uh, and if you subscribe to either of us, you can listen to this podcast early every time, as well as getting bonus material, cut footage, and illustrations and comics, among other things. Uh, just go to Patreon and search for Philip Rice, with one L, or Adam Prosser, with two S's, or neversleepsnetwork.com slash series slash what-mad-universe for the links. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at WMU Podcast or Prankster36 for me, or Spear Hafok A for Philip. So until next time, keep watching the skies.